We've all seen the eyes of a serial killer at some point. Whether it's the dead stare of Ed Gaines's mugshot or the sinister smirk of Richard Ramirez in old court footage, if you're a weirdo listening to this show, you've seen the cold, predatory eyes of a murderer in some medium or another. And you've felt the prickle of unease it triggers along our spines and skin. For a small percentage of people on this planet, however, that anxious feeling has been activated by the eyes of a child. Because sometimes nature goes wrong. Really wrong. And more often, especially in low-income communities abandoned by affluent politicians and businesses, nurture doesn't happen at all. It's a terrifying truth of humankind that when a little aberrant nature combines with a lot of adult neglect kids can transform from wide-eyed innocence into merciless, feral killers. Killers who can hide in our midst with ease. Because who would ever believe that little Johnny or sweet Angelica, with their small hands and grass-stained knees, are capable of crushing another human's windpipe until they never breathe again? The following podcast contains adult themes, gritty details from true crimes, and naughty language. Listener discretion is advised. There's no time now. I began five years ago, in secret, working all night, every night, right into the dawn. A thousand experiments, a thousand failures, and then, at last, the great, wonderful day. Hello, all you spooky nerds. Welcome to Season 2 of Human Fuckery, the only podcast that braises human history in a flavorful reduction of true crime and then serves it with a side of deep-fried psychology. I am your host, Dr. Edward Simon, broadcasting to you from America's most fucked up city, New Orleans, Louisiana. Joining me today, as always, is my beloved co-host, neurodivergent nerdy girl, and controversial winner of last <laughs> month's season premiere, Kimberly. Did I really win? <laughs> Judges on the recording were split down the middle, and then your army of online fangirls, they broke the tie on social media. I don't have fangirls. I'm we sorry. don't We don't have enough listeners for me to have an army of online fangirls. That's not true. Uh, we have thousands of listeners. We do, but that, uh, you know, like, what, one out of every thousand is a fangirl of mine? That's like two people. That's like, that's not even a weed cipher. That was enough. Okay. Point is, I lost. Uh, well, you've got a chance to even the score today, especially since we're testing out a new format adjustment. Um, do you want to explain? Sure. Why not? Regular listeners know our format. My story submission goes first, then Kimberly's, then a pair of judges pick the winner. But we've run into the problem of judges feeling too bad to declare one of us the loser, so... One will usually vote for me, and then the other one will vote for Kimberly, and they can escape their guilt, which leaves social media as the primary judge, where you have, like, 9,000 more followers than I do. Right, which, like, honestly, is not fair to you. But then as— It happened. 
Huh? It's okay. <laughs> I deleted my social media like 14 times and restarted. Yeah. Like Zion in the Matrix. Oh, boy. Um, I have less and less followers each time. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, if you just get on TikTok and pretend, you know, that you're a youth, you could... Uh, anyway. Yeah. Uh, so, guest Judge Celeste mentioned a phenomenon that, that we've been noticing for a while last week. Uh, there's a subliminal bias that happens when Edward's story is always read first because humans sometimes latch on to the first thing they hear and then they can't let it go, which isn't always fair to me as a storyteller. So, this season, we're going to play with the format a little and see if we can mix things up for maximum unbiased results. Starting with today's episode, where your story mm -hmm. is going to be submitted first, and we're only going to have one judge. Yeah. If you're brand new to human fuckery, here's how the competition works. Edward and I draw a topic out of a dusty, mercury-tainted top hat purchased from a haunted shop on Royal Street. We each get one week to dig into the archives and find the best story from history's colon we feel fits that assigned theme. We get another week here in the studio to record and score our submissions. Then we meet here in Human Fuckery Secret Lair to present our stories and have one of us declared the winner. Our intern, Gary the Ghoul, kidnaps judges in the dead of night and forces them under threat of creative death to participate. So their rulings are suspect at best and always coerced. Who's in the dungeon waiting to play with us today? A favorite and familiar voice from last season, Mormon cult survivor, award-winning teacher of the year, jujitsu black belt, and super nerdy dad, Jared Loper. Jared appeared in our Louisiana Colts and American Exorcisms episodes last season. If you'd like to check out his previous rulings as a judge. His rulings have been more fair and constitutional than anything the Supreme Court has been up to lately. Mm -hmm. So we're lucky to have him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, that's funny. <laughs> Plus, neither you nor I are parents, and today's episode involves kids. And what happens when unwanted children are just thrust into the world to fend for themselves? We're lucky to have this insight. Do you want to do the thingy where we dramatically announce the subject? You're damn right. The subject of today's podcast is... Kids, Kids Who, Who Kill. Kill. In honor of this episode, Gary the Ghoul has covered Jared in paper mache, painted him to look like a baby shark pinata, and suspended him over a nursery of hungry toddlers wielding blunt weapons. If Jared fails to perform his judging duties meaningfully, the children will be told he's full of candy and permitted to bludgeon him to death. Where, where did the... Where the fuck did the toddlers come from? Gary doesn't question how we do our jobs. In return, we don't question him. Fair enough. Are you ready to drop your submission? Not as ready as I am to get my tubes tied, but sure. Um, okay. Mary Flora Bell looked like a doll. Her dark page boy haircut showed off a nearly perfect face with high rosy cheeks and a button nose. Two bright blue piercing eyes peered out from underneath a set of bangs and her pink mouth curved into a perfect Cupid's bow. It was the sort of face for selling Gerber baby food, or Morton salt, had Mary's parents had the resources or foresight to get her into a talent agency. It's a shame, knowing what we do now, 
that they had neither. But most things about Mary's life were a shame when they weren't incomprehensibly tragic. Mary was born on May 26, 1957, to a well-known sex worker named Betty Bell in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. Bell, just a teenager herself, lived in a rundown neighborhood notorious for alcoholism and petty crime, hosting clients in her dingy apartment when not traveling to Glasgow for work. We know little about Betty's life before the birth of her daughter. She did have at least one other child before Mary made her entrance into the world, but it's abundantly clear she was not enthusiastic about motherhood. Her sister, Issa McCricket, testified that just minutes after her niece's birth, Betty started screaming, Take the thing away from me! as hospital staff tried to present Mary to her mother, which is an objectively terrible start for any infant human. The injuries, accidents, and negligence started immediately. Betty showed no interest in bonding with her newborn and was prone to leaving Mary screaming for comfort and nutrition for hours without response. She drank and smoked in the baby's presence and yelled at the child aggressively. Prenatal nutrition and preventative care were non-existent. At some point during toddlerhood, Betty accidentally dropped Mary out of a first-floor window onto the rocky ground below. Another time, she attempted to sell the baby to a mentally unstable German woman, causing Betty's sisters to scramble across the country in a successful effort to retrieve their niece. Family members watched helplessly as Mary, quote, emotionally shut down, end quote, first becoming unable to cry, then going distant during social interactions. She wet the bed frequently and was prone to angry or violent outbursts in school. The family begged Betty to please, please let them take Mary, to provide her some care, comfort, and stability, even offering to pay a monthly stipend. But Betty declined. Mary was hers, she said. No one in the family is sure why Betty did this, but some have proposed she was afflicted with Munchausen's, a mental disorder which causes parents to injure, poison, or otherwise harm their children to get attention for themselves. It's unclear if Betty was trying to make Mary sick, or if Mary was trying to kill herself to escape her hellish home life, but Mary overdosed on sleeping pills more than once. Each time, Betty called for help, and poor Mary was resuscitated brought back to live another day in her haunted house of a childhood. Tragically, the abuse wasn't limited to medical crises or neglect. Betty made her money specializing in rough sex and BDSM work and brought home clients who would pay to have Mary watch or be used as a prop in their dark fantasies. This may be why, in part, Betty was so reticent to hand her unwanted child to adults capable of loving her the financial incentive was too good. Betty would later say of her sex work in front of her daughter, quote, well, at least I made sure the whips and chains were hidden, end quote, which is, yeah, not the sort of accountability a mentally healthy parent displays. Given the circumstances, it's no surprise teachers began to notice disturbing things about Mary. Her yelling and sudden bursts of violence frightened other children. Someone had clearly taught Mary that physical violence is normal, and she used threats or a steely gaze to intimidate others regularly. 
She would kill or maim small animals for fun and tried to pour sand into the mouths of her human playmates. Her grades were poor. Despite this litany of problems, Mary did manage to make one good friend. A girl around the same age named Norma Joyce Bell. No relation. Bell was just a common last name in the area. The pair lived on the same road and both attended Delaval Road Junior School. Norma seemed to really enjoy Mary's company, even when she was caught strangling Norma's little brother in the backyard. Now, if it sounds like someone, any adult specifically, should have alerted authorities or child services about Mary, you're right. Between the bedwetting, violent outbursts, harming of animals, and lack of regret for any harm she caused, it was clear Mary was manifesting psychopathic behavior. But this was 1960s England. As a culture, we still knew very little about psychopathy, and even less about child psychology. Researchers had identified what was called the, quote, deviant child profile, end quote, but this was deeply flawed and seen as part of autism, which from the 1950s through the early 1990s was incorrectly believed to only affect boys. People obviously knew something was very wrong with Mary, but systems to help her were not yet in place. The overwhelming sentiment at the time was, mind your own business, and with regard to the local sex worker and her troubled daughter, the working-class denizens of Newcastle did just that. It was May 11th, 1968, when those denizens found a three-year-old boy bleeding and dazed in the area around an abandoned air raid shelter. After treatment, the child articulated he'd been playing with Mary and Norma on top of the old building when he felt a shove from behind. One of the girls, and he couldn't identify which, had pushed him off the roof where he cut his head. Police then received another call from concerned parents who reported Mary and Norma were strangling their daughters in a sandbox after the little boy was found, which is how police first ended up talking with Mary, then age 10, and Norma, age 12. Mary was, to put it bluntly, a total gangster, refusing to admit to either act and glaring at police coolly. Norma was more cooperative, saying in her statement, Mary went to one of the girls and asked, what happens if you choke someone? Do they die? And then Mary put both hands around the girl's throat and squeezed. The girl started to go purple. I told Mary to stop, but she wouldn't. Then she put her hands around Pauline's throat, and she started going purple as well. This was obviously troubling testimony. But since both girls were so young, it was decided neither Mary nor Norma should face any charges. Boys were caught beating and bludgeoning one another all the time in the hardscrabble area. And so the pair were brought home with a warning. Two weeks later, a day before Mary's 11th birthday, the body of four-year-old Martin Brown was found in the upstairs bedroom of a derelict house marked for demolition. His arms were stretched above his head, specks of blood and spittle around his mouth. No bruising, cuts, or trauma were visible anywhere. An autopsy conducted the next day similarly showed no signs of injury, and it was believed the boy may have died of an accidental overdose of pills left in the empty home. The very next day, police discovered a children's nursery in town had been broken into and vandalized, with tiles torn off the roof, books ripped to shreds. 
there were a series of strange notes left behind. One read, Fuck off, we murder, watch out, with the signature Fanny and Faggot written underneath. If you're not British, just know that Fanny doesn't mean what you might think it does. Another said, with numerous misspellings, We did murder Martin Brown, fuck off, you bastard. They've spelled fuck with an H instead of a K, but the message was still really clear. Police didn't take the notes as serious confessions, however. Instead, they assumed some drunk teenagers had broken into the nursery and left the notes behind as a shitty prank to upset the adults. It wasn't until July 31st that Newcastle-upon-Tyne started to feel shaken up. That was the day that another child, Brian Howe, was found dead. Just three years old, Brian was discovered with blue lips, his abdomen and genitals crudely mutilated, and an M carved into one leg. Chunks of hair had been ripped from his head. A pair of broken scissors were found near his feet, and weeds had been thrown on him in a half-assed effort to conceal the body from sight. He had last been seen playing with Norma and Mary. This time, the adults activated. Martin Brown's previously sad death now seemed potentially malicious. A fast autopsy of the new body showed that Brian Howe, despite the lack of bruising or wounds, had had his windpipe squished. Worse, someone had held his nostrils shut while strangling him. Because his attacker left no visible injuries, it was deduced that the murderer was likely another child. Someone too small to do the kind of damage a teenager or adult could. A manhunt was called, and over 100 detectives from the Northumberland area dispatched to interview 1,200 local children. Mary and Norma, as the last kids spotted with Howe, were prime suspects. Just as before, police found Mary to be calm, collected, and resentful. She admitted playing with Brian on the day in question, but claimed she and Norma had left him before lunch. She also said she'd seen him trying to cut a cat's tail off with a pair of broken scissors before they all parted. This comment struck the detectives as odd. Children did weird things, but tormenting animals with scissors isn't usually one of them. Moreover, they'd not mentioned the scissors found near the body publicly. But outside of this incriminating comment, she gave up nothing that would allow them to make an arrest. Norma was less stalwart. Police noticed she seemed anxious and contradicted herself several times. But she too got through the initial interview without saying enough to get arrested. Just a few days later, however, police got a call from Norma's parents asking them to come right away. Once there, on the afternoon of August 4th, Norma Bell confessed that Mary was Brian Howe's murderer. She initially claimed that Mary had taken her to see the body after the crime, that Mary had shared how she enjoyed what she did, and even showed Norma where she'd hidden a razor blade used to carve the M into his body. Norma took law enforcement to the murder site, locating and showing them the blade in question. Police arrived at Mary Bell's house early on August 5th to question their now 11-year-old murder suspect. This time, Mary was less cool. When confronted with what Norma had said, Mary reportedly told police, quote, you're trying to brainwash me. I will get a lawyer to get me out of this, end quote. On August 7th, 1968, 
Brian Howe was laid to rest in a public funeral attended by over 200 locals, including Mary. Detective Dobson, the man who had initially questioned both girls, spotted Mary as the boy's coffin was let out of his home and was horrified to see her laughing. Not only laughing, but rubbing her hands together, a cartoonish recreation of what Hollywood supervillains do. The officer was chilled to his core and stated that he was convinced Mary would kill again. A third questioning of Norma finally got the real story out. Norma had, in fact, been present for the murder. Mary led their trio to a quiet spot a few blocks away, out of plain view. Norma reported that once there, Mary seemed to go all funny, shoving Brian to the ground and starting to strangle him. She asked Norma to help her, something Norma claimed she didn't do. After Brian expired, Mary used the razor blade and broken scissors to draw on his body. Norma made police an illustration of where the cuts were made, which matched the unreleased photos of the poor boy exactly. A forensic investigation soon confirmed something very like these events. Fibers from Mary's dress and Norma's skirt were found on Brian's body and were identical to fibers also left on the body of Martin Brown six weeks before. It was quickly remembered by neighbors that both girls had been seen together at the abandoned house the same day Brown's body was found. Mary and Norma Bell were officially charged with murder a week after the second body turned up. According to reports, Mary's only reply when informed she was being brought in on felony charges were, that's all right by me. The trial that ensued riveted and horrified the United Kingdom in equal measure. There are few things as deeply troubling or traumatic to any community than the murder of innocent children. But when the murderer is a child themselves, one clearly the victim of unrelenting abuse which was witnessed by adults who did nothing to intervene, what do we as a species do? What and who can we reasonably blame? And where were jurors supposed to send Mary or Norma, too young for adult prison, but too dangerous to other children, if convicted? The legal proceedings were thus painful to watch. Mary claimed Norma committed both murders while she watched. Norma said the same thing about Mary. Both underwent multiple psychological evaluations and were found to be operating well outside the spectrum of normal childhood development. Norma, though the older of the pair, was found to be intellectually delayed, notably submissive, and not fully able to grasp circumstances the way a child her age should. Mary, by comparison, was ruled highly intelligent, emotionally withdrawn, deceptive, and prone to sudden mood swings. After multiple evaluations from four different psychiatrists, it was decided that Mary had psychopathic personality disorder. An official report from Dr. David Westbury stated that Mary's social techniques are primitive and take the form of automatic denial, ingratiation, manipulation, complaining, bullying, flight, or violence. There is a very grave risk to other children if she is not closely watched and every conceivable step taken to see that she doesn't do again what she has been found guilty of. 
When asked in court by the judge if he knew of a facility which could safely rehabilitate Mary, Westbury replied no, but specified she would need treatment for years. Mary Flora Bell, age 11, was sentenced to an indefinite detention for the manslaughter of Martin Brown and Brian Howe. The jury cited her age and diminished capacity as the reason for manslaughter versus murder. It was hoped that she could, someday, be released back into society. Norma was found not guilty on all charges. There's a lot more to Mary Bell's story, which we'll talk about on our Patreon sometime soon. But for now, know that she was released from Her Majesty's Prison Ashham Grange in May 1980 at the age of 23, after roughly 11 years in custody. She was immediately granted lifelong anonymity, including a new name and social security number, an effort to allow her to start a new life elsewhere quietly. This anonymity was extended to her daughter, born the day before Mary's own birthday in 1984. Her whereabouts are currently unknown. Mary Bell. Yeah, Mary Flora Bell. Flora Bell. No relation to Norma Bell. She's frightening. She is truly frightening. Um, I, when I was doing my research, um, you know, of course I came across this story. Right. But I didn't even want to be tempted to do this story because it seemed to be a, a relatively popular story. Mm-hmm. Um, I Because I, I'm... I shudder to think that it gets much more egregious and heinous than this. Um, I didn't read it. Anything about her, even though I passed on her. So this was the first. This was the first exposure gotcha. to Mary Flora Bell. And uh, wow, it. Um, I, I, I know I've told the story of a, 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 of a young person that commits murder. But I uh, like after listening to this, I feel like I didn't. Um, this, this, they need to make a movie about this. I don't know if they have this story of Mary. It's a real story. And this is as, as challenging as it gets as far as considering, uh, a, a person taking the life of someone else because, you know, this is, this is the beginning of someone's life. Uh, not just the victim, but the perpetrator as well. And there, there's not been much time, you know, to, to have lived experiences. And so you 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 kind of consider the idea that for somebody to to, to go from A to B so quickly, or right, or just A to Z so quickly, their life has just been a perpetual cycle of trauma and brokenness, and um, that's hard. What do you think about um, Mama Bell saying, "Well, at least I put the whips and chains away when I was doing sex work in front of my child." Like, what else do you want from me? Uh, We need to do a profile on this woman. Right. Uh, Like, how did she end up this way? I wish there were information on that because I have so many questions. I mean, you know, it's a a great pull quote, but it also informs a lot in terms of how this woman regarded her responsibility as a mother and a caretaker. Also um, saying woman. My God. Woman is generous because she was like 16 or 17 when she was... Her brain was about a decade from being gelled sure. at the point that she had sure. Mary. So by the time Mary was 10, her mom was only like 25, 26, wow. which is when your brain finishes gelling. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, this is... 
it's not to say, I mean, I know uh, I have an incredibly good friend who, who got pregnant at 17 and uh, raised an amazing daughter who uh, just turned 40 yesterday. Sure. Uh, yeah. Like, and they, they did great. Um, uh, the, there's so many examples of, of teen moms really kicking ass. It can also go really fucking sideways when you take yeah. a child with almost no resources and say, now with these no resources, you have to raise a child also. You're yeah. on your own, by yeah. the way. We won't be, you know, fuck off. Here's your government cheese. Figure it out. Yeah, there, there are just parts of life. There's parts of this world that are so uh, just utterly challenging, that are so detached from any kind of uh, mental homeostasis that just creates such a uh, just a, a d- disturbing sensation you know and there's, yeah. there's there's precious little you can do about a lot of these corners of the world it, it becomes just part of what one has to navigate in terms of being a human and even though you know most of us don't interact with child killers or serial killers and things of that nature, our exposure to them always forces us to confront a a cluster of questions that most of us um, struggle to wrap our minds around, which oftentimes yields obsessions with true crime shows. Yeah. Very similar to this. Well, I do want to insert, and then we can go to your story. So, because I want to make sure we talk to our guest about these stories more than each other. Um, You know, you say there's precious, precious little we can do uh, about, you know, these, these corners of the earth. But I I do want to emphasize that while that's like a really normal emotional response, and it's true that you can't like, Hey, I I can't tomorrow with fucking no training, just like go, fix a child psychopath you oh, know? Sure, like, sure. But, like I, I completely agree with that but um it cannot be underestimated how much doing things like participating in community service to make sure that the lowest member of your local community is basically taken care of and sure. has all the resources resources they need because the way that we can consistently prevent these shadowy these shadow lands in the world from spreading and getting worse is by making sure nobody falls through to the bottom and mm-hmm. we have collectively uh there are some people doing a lot of really important work to make sure hey uh, if i have enough food that means i share my food if uh, somebody needs help with their medicine then i help them with their medicine if somebody says i need help getting these people to vote you, you get them to vote if somebody says hey we have been treated really bad for a while and there's violence in our communities we have to all agree to not go into work tomorrow and screw up the local economy so that we can get the the government to pay attention to what we're asking for again, then we can prevent, if we actually actively participate in stuff like that, we can affect these shadowy, horrifying corners of the world. Sure, sure. I I was not trying to sound like a a doomsayer. Oh, I don't think you were at all. life is futile and that opposition to dark things is futile. No, I don't think you were. I guess I just mean it more, uh, there's a a certain futility in uh, the hope that these parts of life could forever and in in total be extinguished. Yeah, yeah. You know, how, like when you were a kid, you know, a You're lot like, of kids. You're like, oh, utopia is possible. You know, the, people say like, oh, what do you wish for this year? Or what's this? Or what if you could do one thing, what would it be? And it's always like, I would feed the, all the homeless people in the world. And we already know there's more than enough resources mm-hmm. to feed all, all the, homeless the homeless people, people in the all world. throughout the world. Yes. Yet the, the right problem now. persists. And so it's much bigger than... Than is there enough food? Right. It's m- much bigger than is there enough money, or even are there enough people willing to feed 
Sometimes the mouths that need food the most, that are the most food insecure, they're not interested in it. You know, mm -hmm. it's a very complex dance. And so, yeah, these dark corners of the world, they will always be there. But I do believe that there there has to be balance. And so I do encourage people to do everything that you just said, yeah, get actively involved, for, you know, trying to be part of the light in the world. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, so that we don't end up on a long tangent, why don't, um, why don't you hit me with what you got? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, all you spooky nerds. And also normal people with, I don't know, social skills, an air fryer, whatever it is that makes normal people normal. We accept all kinds here. And we also accept all kinds over on our Patreon. Mm, nice segue. We get it. Everyone's broke. Everyone's got a Patreon and no one wants to fill out yet another online payment form. But if you're listening to this show, then you'll actually love our Patreon. It's got all the best parts of the podcast. Weird stories from history's colon, underscoring and silly sound effects, dark psychology. And less of the other leftover stuff. Us, specifically. It's less of us yammering. Every month, subscribers get either one or two, you get to pick, slickly produced, guest-free, and banter-free episodes of Secret Storytime, our series covering wild stories and case studies ripped from the annals of human history. Subscribers also get long-form written stories, in case you're someone who still likes to read, early and ad-free access to the usual monthly human fuckery competition show, and the ability to pick what we'll write about or do new episodes episodes on next. You can literally send us a link being like, tell this story and we'll go, okay. It's the best way to make sure we can keep doing this show. And every subscription helps us keep Gary the Ghoul housed. It's hard to find a landlord who'll accept a demonic hell spawn with a torture fetish in this market. You can help us keep Gary housed and this show alive by heading over to www.patreon.com backslash humanfuckery. Just pick a tier, enjoy the dozens of already released episodes of Secret Storytime, and wait till you see what we drop next month because, yeah, it's some entertaining fuckery. Carol Edward Cole, better known as Eddie, was born May 9th, 1938, in Sioux City, Iowa, the second son of Laverne and Vesta Cole. It was the tail end of the Great Depression, and the family traveled where work could be found, eventually landing the bunch in Richmond, California, where Laverne secured a job working at a shipyard. However, it wasn't long from there when the American war effort in Europe came calling, sending Eddie's father far away from home. Now, whether it was loneliness or just general fuckery, Eddie's mother, Vesta, eventually began having affairs with various men. Occasionally, she would take him along to her rendezvous, forcing him to sit alone in seedy, unfamiliar apartments as she engaged in drunken debauchery. Beatings would follow. An effort by Vesta to ensure that the young boy would never reveal her transgressions to anyone. On other occasions, Eddie's mother would dress him like a female, 
forcing him to serve coffee to her friends and referring to him as Mama's little girl. By the age of seven, once his father returned home from the war, the beatings would stop only to be replaced by persistent bullying and ridicule at school, specifically for having a girl's name. His undersized frame and quiet nature, well, they weren't much help. Suffice to say that Eddie's brain was being forced into a blender from early on in life. His first apparent act of violence came after awakening from a blackout one day, only to discover that he had strangled the family puppy. From there, his young mind began to fantasize about killing his mother and eventually all females that crossed his path. Despite his growing disdain for women, Eddie's life would take an irreversible turn after an unfortunate encounter with a male classmate. It was a typically gorgeous California day, the year 1946. Eddie was now a mere eight years old. He was swimming with a group of boys at Richmond's Yacht Harbor. One of the boys was a young man that we only know as Dwayne, a classmate often guilty of bullying Eddie. Dwayne spent much of that day at the harbor teasing him as well, while Eddie quietly simmered with rage. He waited some time until the pair were finally alone, and then, without warning, violently held Dwayne's head underwater until he died. The local authorities ruled the death an accidental drowning. No one considered what actually took place. How could they? Nonetheless, a metaphorical cancer was growing inside of Eddie. And from that day, the darkness would now be much more difficult for him to grapple with. Now, as far as most kids who kill stories go, they're generally horrific, but they're often a bit limited. After one or two killings, the child is apprehended and spends most of their natural life behind bars. Because they're minders, we don't get much more information than that. We're left with a lot of questions. Eddie's story, however, is a little different. It's the story of a kid that continued to slip through society's cracks. We often contemplate what might have become of many of these children had they not been brought to justice. Could they have been saved, cured, set back on a proper track, or is a malignant soul simply lost forever? Eddie's story answers those questions. Well, at least so far as his own life was concerned. Despite the brutal and animalistic behavior he was beginning to demonstrate, by the time Eddie was 14, he was classified as a genius, scoring a 152 on an IQ test. That said, his grades were in the shitter. And eventually, well, he dropped out midway through his junior year of high school. 
drinking heavily, he began robbing liquor stores before joining the Navy at age 18. He'd be discharged just two years later on suspicion of burglary and automobile theft. A perpetual failure. Eddie moved back home only to be continually humiliated and ridiculed by his dear old mother. In 1960, now 22, Eddie's rage would crest yet again. One night, with a hammer, he attacked two couples parked in cars on a lover's lane. Soon afterwards, he flagged down a Richmond police car and told the patrolman of his urges to rape and strangle women. The officer suggested voluntary self-committal to a mental hospital. Eddie would spend the next 90 days in Napa State Hospital. But while there, surprisingly, he, he didn't actually talk about his traumatic childhood or his dark fantasies. In fact, he consistently detailed an often happy upbringing. He was released in March 1961 with a diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder. It was recommended he apply for outside psychiatric treatment or voluntary admission to Atascadero State Hospital. Now, eventually ending up at Atascadero and then transferred to Stockton State Hospital, it was there that Eddie's condition was diagnosed as undifferentiated schizophrenia. His doctor at the time wrote, quote, He seems afraid of the female figure and cannot have intercourse with her first, but must kill her before he can do it. Inexplicably, he was discharged in 1963, considered untreatable, yet posing no threat to others. <sighs> now, after his release from Stockton State Hospital, Carol Edward Cole traveled to Dallas, Texas to live with his brother in May of 1963. By June, he attempted suicide after a failed effort to strangle a woman and spending four days in a psychiatric ward. But by November, he seemed ready to put all that behind him when he found the love of his life and married Neville Billy Whitworth. An alcoholic stripper, the pair were together a mere two years. In August of 1965, Eddie convinced himself that Billy was sleeping with the various occupants of the motel they'd been living in. So he took the next logical step and lit the motel on fire with everyone in it. He was arrested, charged with arson, and sent to jail for two years. Upon his release from prison, Eddie attempted to strangle an 11-year-old girl in Missouri. He was arrested and sentenced to now five years in prison. Eventually paroled, Eddie then ended up in Nevada, where he attempted to strangle two more women he picked up from bars. Once again, he surrendered himself to police and was committed to a state hospital. Here's where it gets even wilder. There, doctors deemed him a malingerer, describing Eddie as, quote, 
A highly manipulative man who is utilizing his difficulties with the law and threats of violence to acquire shelter when he is out of funds. He was discharged and placed on a bus headed for San Diego. What the fuck? Within six months of his release, this decision would prove fateful. On May 7th, 1971, two days before his 33rd birthday, Eddie met Essie Buck in a downtown dive bar. They decided to go somewhere more private, which happened to be his car. He strangled Essie to death. He then placed her body in the trunk and drove around with her for two days before dumping her. On May 23rd, 1971, a little over two weeks later, he picked up another woman in a bar, only known as Wilma, once again strangling her and this time burying her body somewhere outside of San Isidro. He would perform this ritual one more time before the month was out. Now, according to Eddie, all his victims had traits in common. They were unfaithful to their husbands or boyfriends. Each would approach him and they would agree to accompany him to isolated locations for the purposes of having sex. He said the women would often laugh or make light of their cheating, stoking his rage, reminding him of his adulterous mother. But in July of 1973, Eddie got married once again, this time to a barmaid by the name of Diana Paschal. Now, like Billy before, she was also an alcoholic. Their relationship was turbulent from the start, with the two often fighting and him leaving for days at a time. It was during his time away that Cole would commit murder. Over the next few years, Eddie would go on a tear traveling to various states and playing out his murderous compulsions. Sex, strangle, and dump the body. However, in Oklahoma City, November 1977, well, Cole met another barfly. And this time, well, things would play out a little differently. After agreeing to spend the night with her, Eddie claims that when he woke up, she was already dead in the bathtub. Her feet and arms were in the fridge, and slices of her buttocks were found in a skillet on the stove. It's unclear as to whether he consumed her, but ultimately he says he just threw her body out with the trash. In September 1979, after six years of marriage, Eddie finally strangled Diana to death. However, he didn't leave the city. A neighbor called the police after noticing Eddie digging a grave in the crawl space beneath his house. Police would find Diana wrapped in a blanket and stored in the closet. Police decided that Diana died from her heavy drinking and did not rule her case a homicide. Eddie was detained and eventually released. Just... Well, on November 30th, 1979, Carol Edward Cole was found at the scene of his third murder in the same month. 
43-year-old Sally Thompson. Her sons had dropped by the house to visit when they were met by a disoriented Eddie reeking of whiskey. They found their mom lying on the couch, face down, naked from below the waist. Eddie staggered back to the couch nonchalantly and just sat down next to the corpse. When the police arrived, he was yet again taken into custody. Eddie told the police that Sally had invited him over for sex. There were no signs of sexual assault. Police, fuck my life, let him go again, believing Sally had died of alcohol poisoning. Nonetheless, finally, for fuck's sake, the next day, a detective noted the address Eddie had given was to a halfway house for convicted felons. After being picked up from his job at a Toys R Us warehouse, Eddie Cole finally confessed. He admitted not only to Sally's murder, but to the killings of 35 women. In April 1981, Carol Edward Cole was sentenced to 25 years to life imprisonment after being convicted of three counts of first-degree murder. Cole had taken the stand as his only defense witness. He told the jury about his upbringing and hatred of women. He also told them that when he killed, well, to him, it was always like he was killing his mother. And in January of 1984, Eddie's mother would finally pass away. This seemed to shake something loose in him. Whether it was peace or resignation, it's tough to say. But he stopped fighting, stopped running. He seemed ready to face every consequence of his actions. Shortly thereafter, he'd be sentenced to death for two murders in Las Vegas. He made no pleas for mercy, and as his execution date neared, he told an Associated Press reporter, There is absolutely nothing good about me. It's too late for me and for the many victims. I just want to get it over with. Here he is, in his own words, from his final interview. Why not fight for your life? I just don't care to. Are you sorry? For the victim? Yes. Yes. Anyone in particular? Mm, especially the one that was the uh, 11-year-old girl way back in 1967. Uh, and uh, even that, even doing that five-year sentence, it wasn't, uh, that wasn't uh, enough. But uh, it affected me. Just uh, also because I, uh, not suffered, but I thought about it and condemn myself for, for many years. Because I can just imagine what that dear, what her life might have been like. When you think about this execution, are you, are you afraid that, that there might be some pain involved? After all, we, we don't really know. This is the first time that the state has carried out this this type of execution. Uh, you know, I said if I wasn't concerned about that, I'd be lying. <laughs> because everybody wants to go the you know, easiest, most comfortable way. Does that enter your mind, though, that you might? It has entered my mind. They might, you know, something might go wrong, or, or you know, be some, some kind of suffering. But 
That has not uh, altered my uh, decision. Do you deserve to die? For what I did, yes, I, I think I deserve to die. On December 5th, 1985, Carol Edward Cole would be given his last meal at 5.30 p.m. Tossed salad with French dressing, jumbo shrimp, French fries, Boston clam chowder, and some cookies. He spent his final hours playing cards with the prison priest. Outside, on the parking lot of the gray granite prison, nearly a dozen people gathered under a crescent moon to light candles in protest of Cole's execution. At 1.43 a.m., wearing leg irons and a chain attached to his waist and wrists, Cole was escorted into the death chamber and lifted onto the table by four corrections officers. His last words were, It's all right. There was no noise, except for the whirring of a nearby wall fan. The witnesses, one or two of them dabbing moist eyes, watched quietly as Cole convulsed. He was declared dead at 2.10 a.m. Eddie was survived by a brother and three sisters. None attended his execution, and his body was never claimed. He became the first man in Nevada to die by lethal injection and remains one of the youngest documented murderers in history. In one of his last interviews, he's quoted as saying, Anything you do to a kid follows them through life. It's just like a walking time bomb. Do you feel like a walking time bomb? Uh, you know what I think I have at points in my life, but I've uh, I've I've never detonated that way. Yeah, um, I've I detonated other ways. Like uh, I don't I don't. Did it? Did that statement just kind of feel like a cop out, or did it feel like uh, like chilling truth? I didn't hear it coming, as a cop coming from the mouth of someone who has just been fractured. I didn't hear it as a cop out. I heard. I mean, I find all of his acts after childhood completely deplorable, utterly uh, unacceptable. Um, and yeah, sure. when, when he answered, yeah, I, I, I think I do probably deserve to die. I was like, I, I can't really disagree with you. Sure. Eddie. Like, uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm on, yeah, I'm I'm on board with this. However, I did hear somebody who was aware that they were in trouble asking for help more yeah. than once and repeatedly being failed. And yeah. so it... it it's almost easier to have sympathy for him than Mary because he appeared at least to have moments of awareness and maybe a desire to do better. Whereas Mary was just like, let's go. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, he seemed like a very uh, sympathetic person. And I'm not trying to sympathize for anyone who's listening and just like, hey, but he's the killer. I fucking know. I'm not saying I'm not condoning anything that he did. I'm I'm looking at it as as someone who makes space for human beings routinely and the ideas that there may or may not be possibilities for people to still change and that everyone that 
that acts out in the world and does damage and cause harm first had something done to them. Each of us that are perpetrators were also victims first. Right. And um, I thought that there was something really sad about his resignation, especially when he talked about the guilt that he felt over uh, assaulting the 11-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. And also something that struck me that really kind of uh, tugged at a heartstring. And again, I know this is strange. I'm sympathizing with the killer. Uh, just the last thing he ever ate on this. Planet oh my god! I was just gonna say something about was it. Cookies. I well, like a little boy. But you know, like I was so disturbed by his choice of last meal. Wait, 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 wait. What, you were disturbed by it? Yes. Because what? Uh, First of all, why? he he was like my last meal on this planet gonna be a salad i was like a what 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 i mean oh man this man really is fucked so, so up you're he taking this in a different direction no, so because no. he had a salad with french dressing no let me like, finish let me finish let me finish Jumbo first of all shrimp, i was Boston like this guy could have had anything and what he picked was a salad and some clam yeah. chowder and i was yeah. like this poor man was never exposed to any real delicious food at any point in his entire Probably life not. because otherwise this is not what he would have picked sure and then when he finished with the cookies i just had this vision of like this was probably him returning to one of the only happy memories he ever had in his life yeah. i was just like what a horrendous last culinary experience yeah. and a sad one on top of it. I was deeply affected by the meal. But that, that's why I felt the need to include it. Um, I'm really I happy like, that you, you know did. You know what? This has to go in there. We we have to like it's 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 as close as you can get to like an, a voyeuristic observation of a killer. Like totally. when, they're, when they're not you know being interviewed right. or answering questions performing. or anything. What are they doing? You know, he spent his last hours playing probably, you know, gin rummy and eating cookies. Like it, um, there's something heartbreaking in that. Yeah. Even, but even with kind of conceding to an extent that, yeah, he probably just did need to go. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, and I'm not a proponent of the death penalty. This man was saying, take me. Like this yes. is not. We're not having a, a capital punishment discussion. He was saying, I'm ready. But when the, when the judge ordered him, uh, sentenced him to death, uh, he said, thank you, judge. Like, that was his response. Like, he right. was He, he was, was resigned to, to this. Yeah. And it, it sounds like he had some awareness that, like, I am irrevocably broken. And this, yeah. this is probably the best thing for everybody, including yeah. me. Um, and so, I, you know, I don't know if I'll go as far as to say he deserved to die. But he sure wanted versus, to. Versus kind of going along with what he's saying and, and say, well, it's possible that he just needed to die. Right. You right. know? Um, well, I have like way more questions about this, especially from a, a psychological point of view. But we have a, a, a good guest who's like versed in this stuff. So um, why don't we do the guest thing and then I'll ask the questions there. All right. Gary! Jesus. Bring in the guest. Hi, Jared. Jared. Hey, guys. Well. Welcome back. Thank you. Good good to see you again. Long time. Yeah. It has been a minute. Yeah. Good to be back. Uh, good to be back. The paper mache is a bit much, but it's good. It's but good well, it's, it's very moisturizing, <laughs> you know. I hope you're not gluten intolerant. No, it's it's good. It's uh it's it's like a girdle for me right now. Which <laughs> is wonderful. So we've mentioned this briefly in your previous appearances on the show, but uh, we should probably talk about it more so that people understand why Gary kidnapped you. Um you work in special education. You work with kids. Is this correct? 
Yeah, yeah, I do. I actually just finished my master's in special education like a month ago. So. Congratulations. Congratulations, That's sir. Awesome. Somebody was Thank productive you. during a human plague. Good job. Yeah, tried. So um, what have you learned um, in your master's level study about kids and human development uh, that might be pertinent to today's subject matter? Oh, wow. Uh, so one of them that comes up a lot is like, uh, so I, I mostly do intensive uh, special education. So students who have like um, more severe forms of like uh, autism or Down syndrome or various other uh, ailments. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's a whole other side of special education called like uh, emotional disabilities. Mm -hmm. uh, and emotional disabilities usually come from uh, students, children who've had adverse childhood experiences. Aces. Uh, yes. Right? Yes. Everybody, Lots of aces. For people listening, aces are your adverse childhood experiences. In addition to leading to developmental and emotional disorders, they can also be antecedents for autoimmune disorder and various cancers, as well as mental disorders like suicidal ideation and self-harm as an adult. So the things that happen to you as a little kid really, really matter for a very long time after you stop being a little kid. Am I explaining that accurately? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I wrote down some notes on that before I before I came in uh, today. There's a, a huge link between uh, ACEs and uh, psychotic tendencies mm. in individuals as they get older. So like uh, they call it, so ACEs, they, I'm going to be a dork about it here for a second. Please ACEs do. Like, uh, it can be things like a natural disaster mm -hmm. or it can be things like, um, accidents that have happened but uh, aces they call it with intent to harm where an adult or a peer uh, is hurting a child in some way or form uh, those are the ones that actually lead to the psychotic symptoms uh, mm. in adults as they get older i wrote it down kate j stanton she wrote an article uh, for the adolescent psychiatric clinics of north america and said that kids who have a single ace with intent to harm are 2.9 times more likely to develop psychotic symptoms and any who have three aces are 4.7 times and basically the more you have the more it goes on so like the uh the kids in our stories today they clearly had a lot of aces mm. growing up and so it, it reaches a point for a lot of kids where like it's almost inescapable for them to not have psychotic tendencies right right edward you um you did a lot of units on uh, trauma. Um, can you talk a little bit about how, you know, there's there's aces with intent to harm, but then there are things just like common negligence um, and, uh, you know, emotional invalidating of your kids, mm -hmm. uh, just, you know, trying to force your belief system onto a developing child and, and constantly invalidating or ignoring how they feel. What kind of effects does that tend to have on, on people psychologically? Uh, we all have early childhood wounds like Correct. there's there's not a person on the planet that doesn't have what is referred to as primal wounds these are right. wounds that are experienced within the first three years of our life and so these are things that happen to us before we have a tremendous amount of cognitive understanding but also before we have words to articulate what it is that we're thinking feeling in relationship to what we're experiencing and so these things become uh, exacerbated by having nowhere else to go but forced down into the body. Mm -hmm. And these things are expressed either behaviorally or like you referenced before, medically. 
you know, as far as uh, people developing a variety of symptoms, sure. autoimmune disorders yes. throughout their life, diseases cetera, of gut brain access disruption, diseases of uh, HPA access disruption, etc. Abuses are the obvious: hitting kids, neglecting kids. Uh, you know, they they've had various studies for for going on a long time now, where they have just followed the lives of of orphans or children that simply weren't even held in the first few months or the first year of mm -hmm. their life. And just the lack of tactile interaction with a caregiver emerged into developing severe psychiatric disorders throughout their life. And, uh, you know, you find in most psychopaths that there is a lack of, of tactile care early on in their life. They're not just devoid of it, but then you tack onto it the more overt abuses that take place as well. And um, yeah, you literally just break the mind mm -hmm. of a human being. I, I always kind of refer to it as this like a like a tree, you know, that 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 grew through a fence that was placed, mm -hmm. uh, you know, on a property line or what have you. And, and the tree doesn't just decide not to grow because there's a fence there. The, the, the tree will just absorb the fence. Mm -hmm. And so you have this thing lodged inside of you essentially for all of your life and and you 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 have a slight awareness that something's wrong with you that there's you're you're not like everyone else you can hold conversations like a lot of these crazed killers can they can sit down and have these almost docile interviews with uh, with reporters, with psychoanalysts about their life conditions, many of them very, very intelligent, mm -hmm. well-spoken, uh, almost at some points even exhibiting certain levels of kindness and consideration. If there's just something that their brain has grown through and it's those abuses from early on that uh, you know, they can touch them very gently as far as their remembrance of, oh, I was mistreated as a child. They still can't necessarily wrap their entire brain around what it is that took place and why they are different from other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's some sobering shit. Um, Jared, uh, working with some of the kids that you do, obviously protecting identities and all of that is incredibly important, but would you say that you have encountered live and in action the consequences of, of negligent or um, perhaps emotionally unaware parenting? Uh, yeah, 100%. Uh, and so how does that tend to look or, or manifest in your personal experience? I think because I, I haven't followed any of these children into adulthood, uh, I still see them while they are children. Mm -hmm. Uh, and for them, it's still a very confusing experience. And for them, it's still, they're trying to navigate what they're feeling with what they're experiencing. Uh, and I've been very fortunate to work with uh, other educators and other professionals who have really tried to create a positive environment for these students mm -hmm. uh, and tried to, tried to do what they can to create, I guess, a counterbalance to what those kids have experienced. Try to give them like a, a loving community, try to give them uh, a safe place where they can feel things and experience things and go through and process their traumas um, without fear of judgment, without fear of retaliation, um, that space where they can actually come to that. And um, it's interesting to see because sometimes these children will lash out and they won't understand even why it is they lash out. Mm -hmm. uh, and then to be able to come back with the 
lashed out against and be able to talk to them and know that they're safe with that person. Uh, it's been it's been really interesting to see. And so I, I think I, I mean, I don't know. It's 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 a wild ride. I don't I don't know how else to say it. It's just it's it's very traumatic for these kids and to see them try and understand it and overcome it and do better. Um, it's it's hard, uh, just like anything, any kind of improvement is hard, but uh, mm -hmm. these kids are really going through a lot, especially when they 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 aren't necessarily fully developmentally aware of how to go through their traumas. Most of the kids that you, you work with that have uh, emotional disorders and what have you, are they removed from the environments that kind of elicited some of these damages that are like are they still with the parents for the most part or are they in foster care or it really depends uh it depends on what people are able to find and what they're not there have been instances where we've had to call uh child protective services and mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily end with uh the child being removed mm -hmm. put anywhere safer uh, and so some of these kids are still stuck in those environments and so, some of them still have to suffer through it. Does it feel sometimes like you're kind of fighting against the grain that everything essentially gets undone once they leave you? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the hardest part about teaching in general is mm -hmm. not being able to like go be home the one to be there <laughs> for those kids all the time. How, how much space do uh, do they give you to be tactile with students? Do they allow you to hug them? Do they allow you to uh, be affectionate with them? Or is that pretty much just off limits? Uh, no, I mean, like, no one's ever come and told me I could or couldn't. I just, sure. you do, because, like, you love them, you care about them, and you want them to be okay, and it's just part of it. But, gotcha. you know, you also respect the kids' boundaries, like, if they don't want that affection you don't try and give it to them anyways sure right and you've been physically assaulted by kids in school before i think that's worth mentioning yeah Some, many times sometimes um <laughs> yeah it's many times for, for people who are not oh, familiar boy. with jared's resume thank god he's a uh black belt in brazilian jiu-jitsu and and also <laughs> a, a you know just a strapping fine upstanding patriotic american boy but um, <laughs> um uh you know it it I think it's important for people to understand who might not have um, a lot of understanding about childhood trauma or trauma in, in general that there are these electrical surges that go through traumatized individuals' bodies and it, it is a full lizard brain, all emotional control, all logic, all it's all offline. Everything that would make you go, the solution to this problem is not to punch this person in the face, is deactivated for a period of time. And that means that they can have a teacher like Jared, who they actually really care about um, and have a good relationship with and trust as a person and still act violently towards them because mm -hmm. the part of their brain that's supposed to be regulating who's dangerous and who's not, how do we respond to stimulus, stimulus how do we not, is completely offline until that particular meltdown is over. Um, am I explaining that right? Yeah. Uh, and the other thing that I would love to um, is just ask both of y'all is uh, Edward is a you know PhD in psych and uh, Jared is just a smarty pants who knows about children. Um, so typically when we share stories about kids who kill or kids who do cult stuff or kids who do weird stuff, you get the response from people of, oh, well, a good beating would have just, you know, if we just slapped this kid around more, we could have just beaten the psychopathy right out of him. Um, I'll, I'll start with you, Jared. Um, how well does spanking the trauma or violence out of your children typically work? 
Oh my god, uh, not at all. <laughs> okay. I mean, that's the thing. These are the kids who, uh, a lot of times, they have been physically punished over and over for whatever their uh, alleged slights towards the adults or peers in their lives are like. And clearly, you know, that didn't work. It just made things worse. Like that's I, I hate hearing that when people are like, "Oh, well, they just need more punishment." It's like, no, they don't. It's why they are here in the first place. And what's your typical response to the person who's like, "I got slapped." around by my parents and I'm great. It's like, uh, you're probably not that great. <laughs> Thank you. you. Uh, and Edward, what about you? What's, what is uh, your experience given your thesis work uh, and your, your many papers? Uh, what happens when you try and slap or spank uh, the violence or misbehavior out of your kids? I think it's challenging for, for some people to, to get on board with the don't hit your kids because we still, to some extent, even as we grow older, we find it difficult to sacrifice certain ideas around our parents. As children, parents are God. Right. Parents cannot be wrong. Right. Which is why we start to internalize the dysfunction in the house and we start to blame ourselves. Mm -hmm. We become erased, our identities disappear. And in that disappearance, there's a, a, a total lack of integration of a person. And so for some people to look back and say, well, what happened to me really was horrible, uh, would require them to essentially rewrite the narrative of their life mm. and hold parents accountable for the damaging things that they did to them. There's there's no question that violence can teach us things. There's no question that pain absolutely teaches us things. But to be physically assaulted by your caregivers mm -hmm. is one of the most damaging things that can happen to a person. And some people can't see past, well, this child is well-behaved. You can certainly modify most things' behavior if you beat it enough. <laughs> but what you're doing in other areas of their mind, in their spirit, in total, in general, like the fractures that they experience later on, and just like Jared is saying, like when they say, you know, look, look, my parents did this and look how I turned out. Well, they they're just not connecting the difficulty difficulties that they've had throughout their life with the fact that they experienced some of this abuse now it doesn't mean that some people haven't cultivated resiliency in reference to abuse that they've experienced mm -hmm. and made something of it sure. used pain as a resource and you could say well look at the result i'm i'm a success and that's all fair and well but you these people are haunted mm -hmm. for, for nearly the entirety of their lives by the erasure of who they are early on. Mm -hmm. the, the inability to individuate. You can make as much fucking money as you want throughout your life. But if when you look in the mirror, it's still a disintegrated mosaic you have not lived. So the a goofy question, um, since we just talked about some some serious stuff for a bit. Um, hey, Jared, you're a dad, huh? Yeah. Um, have either of your children displayed any psychopathic tendencies? Wow. <laughs> have you ever been like, oh, I this love this kid so much, question. but <laughs> but maybe maybe this kid could kill me in my sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, maybe the desire is there, but, uh, 
as far as uh, as far as that. No, no, they haven't actually. They've actually. I have been super fortunate. Like all joking aside, like my kids are really wonderful kids. Uh, they're twins. They're turning thirteen tomorrow. Actually. Oh my god! Happy birthday to your teenagers. Wow. And they they haven't made any effort to truly kill me yet. Although I I pretended I was going to kick at my daughter earlier today, and she reflexively blocked really hard and clinked <laughs> shins with me and I thought I was going to die. <laughs> this is what happens when you teach the youth uh, liberation martial arts, you know? <laughs> I know, I gotta <laughs> they're, stop. They're liberating so soon. <laughs> so quickly. Uh, do you feel like being a parent has um, helped you work with kids in a more compassionate way or do you just feel sort of overstimulated by childhood energy literally all of the time (laughs) (laughs) it's a little of both honestly okay uh and uh if i if i'm being super honest like getting into special education and learning more about it has actually i think helped me become a better father instead Mm -hmm. of the other way around sure yeah uh, because it's given me a better understanding and insight into things. Whereas before it was, you know, you're just doing what you've seen or trying to improve on what you've seen. Uh, but then getting a, a deeper knowledge of it definitely helps make it better. But um, I don't know. I've always been, I think I've been more on the softer parenting side anyways. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I've never, I've never enjoyed like escalating things between me or my kids or anything like that. And so like, but sometimes the childhood energy, like I'll, I'll go to work and the kids are a lot that day. And there's just like, I, I feel like sometimes I use up all my patience there and I come home and then uh, my patience is real low when that childhood energy is still going here. <laughs> and so it's, sure. Yeah, you got to refill the cup, and sometimes there's nothing to refill the cup with. So Sometimes that is valid. Well, we yeah. salute you, sir, for your uh, your, in ser- your service in the home and outside the home. You're an incredibly important community member wherever you are. Um, Thank you. Let's talk about what happens when communities totally fail their kids. Um, oh, buddy. Uh, so let's start with um, Mary Flora Bell. Um, Jared, do you have any immediate thoughts or insights on... On, on poor Ms. Bell. Uh, yeah, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the first one. And I, the funny thing is, is I had actually just read this story earlier this week before I got... Oh, uh, oh wow. Okay. Why? Because someone had posted like a, posted a f- social media thing about it. And I was like, well, that's weird. I want to learn more about that. And so I read it and then listened to your story and was like, oh, hold on now. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, like, man, what a rough start to life. Uh, I mean, I don't even know. I don't even know how to top that just to be so unwanted and then to just basically be a prop in someone else's life through all of your childhood. Yeah. And not just that, like, yeah, I mean, I think we all have seen like a lot of movies or, or documentaries or stories about kids who, you know, like, you know, the, the kids of pageant moms, you know, or, or kids who, you know, uh, end up taking the role of the husband who left in the mom's life. And they're like, you know, my son's my partner. And you're like, oh, God, no, your, your son is a child. That's not your partner. Don't do that. Um, but this is different. There, there's that. And then there's you are a prop in my strange BDSM work uh, that I'm doing with with low income men uh, in this, you know, uh, period of time where we weren't even attempting to prevent trauma from spreading in, in the 1960s where we were just like, fuck it, let's fuck everybody up. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. So, uh, you know, there's being a prop and then there's being like a prop in a, in a kink fantasy that you have not consented to be in. And that... Um, and consent to be in it. Right. Right. Um, and uh, I can only imagine that uh, being, you know, sold before age three to a stranger and then collected terrifyingly in the middle of the night by some very upset aunties and given back to a mom who's very angry. Like, even if you don't, again, like Edward was saying, there, there's a period of time in your life where you don't have the words to express anything, but I have to imagine that that, even if she couldn't say, uh, this is incredibly fucked up and it's making me feel terrible, I have to believe that, that Mary Bell was like, this is fucked up and it feels terrible, even though I'm two and mm-hmm. I'm not entirely sure what's going on. Yeah. Uh, and right. It, am I am I giving a two year old too much credit or is no? This, yeah, okay, no, that's what I thought. Not at all. Ugh. Um, it, it's just their concept is different, you know, as far as like understanding what's happening. But they can certainly uh, interpret the the sensation of neglect, and mm-hmm. neglect does come with a sensation. There's an absence, a, a void, um, you know, during formative and developmental years that causes the mind and body to suffer. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think that Mary's um, fixation on strangulation and keeping things from breathing maybe was a learned behavior? <laughs> like, because it seems like that was kind of her thing right out the gate and she just stuck with it. Um, uh, that, that strangulation was a learned behavior? Is, is it possible that the fact that, like, Mary's acting out seemed to start with cutting off air supply was oh you know they they said that the thing that she did where she tried to pour sand into her playmates mouths like mm-hmm. happened more than once sure um so she my question is did this just manifest this way because that was her thing or is it like hey um somebody has clearly demonstrated strangulation and choking to me enough that now I'm curious about playing with it myself sure I do think it was it, it was likely something that she witnessed um didn't understand it entirely mm-hmm. uh, and, and was experimenting with it in mm-hmm. one way or another and probably, um, I don't want to say enjoyed it, but was very much aroused and stimulated by it. Uh, she described enjoying it to Norma when... Sure. Like, so I know you don't want to assume, but she did She did say she did. Sure. Yeah, I, I mean... Maybe not the way she enjoys like a piece of cake, but okay. I, I, I don't know. I think that might, for some children, be their best way of describing stimulation. Okay. All right. Yeah, that's fair. Jared, how about you? Uh, thoughts on Mary's, uh, hey, this is my move and it's what I do? Uh, I mean, it, it definitely could be a learned thing from uh, from the experiences she had growing up in her home. But I mean, it's it's hard for me to say without knowing what actually like specifics of what went on there which frankly i don't really want to know about (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's fair my head is full of enough horrible stuff without extreme details do you have any questions about the case (laughs) pretty straightforward there everything about it is just top to bottom it's it's wild was there any specific part of the story that you found most disturbing or challenged you the most Oh sure. Uh, as far as like most disturbing, like probably their their last one with the the broken scissors and the mutilation mm. to to right. be that young and then to decide this is what I'm gonna do. Like that's it feels over the top when an adult does that. Sure. Right. Uh, right. And so it feels even more uh, ghastly when it when it's a child doing that. Mm-hmm. 
How do you, as somebody who's really community-minded, um, you know, you participate in, in feeding people in your community who are food or home insecure. You obviously participate in, in working with kids who need a certain amount of emotional care. Uh, you've always been a very uh, community-minded person. On a scale of one to ten, how much do you feel Mary's community failed her? Man, um, I'd say they probably failed her pretty hard because it wasn't just a one-off thing it wasn't a secret thing even she's a kid and kids are bad at hiding things right uh and it's she had a lot of instances in which uh her friend's parents were calling the police because mm -hmm. she was trying to hurt her friends like all throughout childhood uh and her friend's siblings and um so it's people knew what was happening uh, and I also have questions about the family and maybe it's not fair to bring that up even, but like the, her aunts knew to go rescue her, but then not to just keep her. Yep. I have so many questions about that choice that that the, feels very confusing to me. Yeah. So they, they, it says that they offered to keep her, but then the mom refused, but the mom also tried to sell her. And so the, it feels like there's some inconsistencies there with what was going on. And so... Uh, I feel like as as clearly uh, the failures that came from her own mother figure, like, yeah, like community knew, everyone knew, mm -hmm. like, all her friends and family knew and they just sort of held back, it seemed like. Yeah, yeah, I didn't have time to put it in the story just because it is getting too long, but Mary tried to uh, strangle and brutalize Norma like no less than three or four times to the point where Norma's wow. dad had to pick her up and physically remove Mary Bell from the home and be like, go home until you calm down because you keep trying to murder my kid. And oh. then the next day they were like, and then Mary and Norma playing together again. And like, well, wow. well I mean, my parents yeah. made a lot of mistakes. Mom, dad, I know you're probably listening to this episode. I think we're all clear that you made a bunch of mistakes. But if one of my kids, <laughs> if one of my friends had tried to, my family and I have a so very candid. We, we're really like... candid about it. My parents fuck some things up. I fuck some things up. But part of uh, healing is being able to go, hey, we fuck some things up. But, you know, now now we talk about it rather than stuffing it until it becomes an illness or a resentment. But I believe that even in the errors that my parents made, if one of my friends consistently trying to kill me, um, my dad would have been like, that's a that's a you don't get to hang out with them anymore. Um, not because you did something wrong, be, because this is unhealthy for you. And um, I, in fact, I can think of one instance where my dad did actually do that. So, um, yeah, it just seems I, I get the culturally things were different. Um, you know, the, that there was very much that that very puritanical, you know, um, you know, white proper, you know, we stay out of people's business thing. But it's like, to what degree do are, are we staying out of people's business? Like that, that might be too much staying out. Uh, yeah. Edward, do you have any uh, things that you haven't said about this story yet or you want to move on? I don't know. I feel like <laughs> when we talk about like kid killers and things like that, there's always, it, it, you know, some unfortunate circumstance where, you, you know, a kid does something really messed up and it's horrible. And, you know, of course, you've got the makings and the trappings of a young psychopath emerging, etc. But this, weirdly enough, despite the fact that she was a child, uh, it almost felt like a much more developed kind of maniacal path where the letters were left behind. Oh my God, I know. Uh, the, the vandalizing of the school, the antagonism of the police and, mm -hmm. and, and the community, etc. The markings on the body. 
this felt very sophisticated she was for like in, a 12 year old she was she was she was 10 when she did the first one um uh or 11, or, so, yeah, sorry she, she was okay. she was 11 when she finally got busted but i mean every psychological assessment says this is an, an incredibly smart kid fascinating um, this, the, and 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 they said she she is um highly cunning just like a kid yeah. who's just like what what can I do? I mean, the fact that like a 11 year old girl when the cops are like, so we talked to your friend. She said you murdered these kids. Yeah. Uh, we have to probably take you in for felony. And she's like, I'll get a lawyer to get me out of this. Like that is cold yes. as ice yes. for an adult. Yes. Let alone someone whose 11th birthday no happened panic. two weeks ago. She's Just like, like yeah, I'm, I'm good. I'm going to lawyer yeah. up. Like, fuck. <laughs> Just, yeah. I don't know. It, um, the fact that she, God bless you if you're listening, Mary, um, <laughs> got essentially turned loose on the world eventually um, is so unsettling. I would love to have known with more specificity how the rest of her life went, if that uh, were possible. A lot of people wanted to. Yeah. Um, and yeah. with, this will be on uh, the Patreon. I'm going to do an episode. But there was an entire um, push after her release to figure out who she was and where sure. she was. And they did actually find her at some point. Um, but before too much information could be granted, her name and her daughter's name and their socials were changed again. So the, the wow. UK government has worked very hard to supply anonymity to her, her daughter, and now her granddaughter. Wow. Um, and there are a lot of people who were very angry that she sure. was granted anonymity because they felt like, okay, I get it. This is a minor. You want to, in theory, give them the opportunity to have a normal life again. But mm -hmm. also, this means that a psychopathic serial killer could potentially be in our midst again and we would have absolutely no idea sure um jared how did you feel about them releasing mary uh after you know only about a decade plus and then giving her anonymity uh really mixed feelings mm -hmm. uh because again like yeah. i i think of like my own kids like they're they're about to be teenagers and like there's so much that they've done where like they just don't understand the full weight of what mm -hmm. they have done right uh and like i would never want them to spend their entire lives judged on like uh, something they did wrong when they were 10 or 11. Mm -hmm. um but you know they also didn't like kill and mutilate people either <laughs> <laughs> right and so like it's it's hard uh to look at that but one of the things that actually ends up i think concerning me the most about it uh, is she had a daughter and she had a daughter and we really don't know the state of how that home life was for yeah. them yeah. like especially yes. based on how she grew up like what sort of patterns were continued what mm -hmm. sort of patterns weren't mm -hmm. uh, and I think about that just from like a, an educator perspective like someone mm -hmm. who takes care of children who have had horrible adverse childhood experiences yeah okay final question about mary um edward i'll start with you what are the chances as a diagnosed psychopath that after 10 years of therapy ish mary would be a suitable mom oh i i think very very slim okay uh, and, and that's not to damn her at all i, I just don't sure. um as i understand it rehabilitating psychopaths is exceptionally difficult sure my my father had 
all the makings of a psychopath. Wow. Uh, he he should have. That's very candid. Most likely been a serial killer. Oh, oh, so now. <laughs> well, hold on. Now we got to hear more of it. <laughs> yeah, wait. So, so what? Explain yourself. In what way would your dad have the makings of a psychopath? Well, he was uh, uh, more or less. <laughs> God bless you, Grandma. I never met. Uh, he was essentially uh, abandoned by his mother. She, he never knew his father. She didn't want to be a mother. He was placed in a home. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was beaten routinely. He wet the bed. Mm-hmm. Um, during adolescence, uh, I believe there was one occasion that he told me towards the end of his life where he harmed an animal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he burned a gas station to the ground. And set a dumpster on fire. Um, in bedwetting, fires, animal abuse, animal being abuse, abused by uh, adults. All, all of that are, 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 I mean, they are prototypical in terms of the development of psychopaths. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say he grew up to be um, a well versed father. I think with a lot of love and kindness and stability and consistency. Uh, he emerged, I think, as a very good man. Mm-hmm. But I think had had it not been for my mom, he would have struggled mightily to be a caregiver. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, it is worth mentioning that a lot of the abuse he suffered was at the hands of the Catholic archdiocese. Yeah. Uh, with specificity, those were the people beating him. Uh, until he lost an eye, am I correct? They beat him so hard they... Blinded him in one eye? Uh, no, this was actually, um, this wasn't from a beating. Oh, um, sorry. He was wrestling with another boy, as as boys do, right. out, out on the playground. and in Also an, girls, let's not be sexist. Okay. We grapple too. Commonly, <laughs> it's it's boys who are, who are getting a little bit more physical on the playground. Sure. Where the girls are like making like crowns out of dandelions and things like that. Again, being um, very sexist. Of but course. I appreciate where you're coming from. <laughs> but but <laughs> tell me I'm wrong. All right. Ooh. Now, whatever. Sure. <laughs> Everyone listening knows I'm not wrong. But <laughs> I'm not saying that some girls don't get rough. They don't I'm just play, saying I was not a dandelion. And, and, and whatnot. And, and I, was, a I was a dandelion girl. Yeah. You, I was a dandelion girl and I was a less, let's fist fight girl. So I, I just, you know, I want you to know what you're dealing with. Well, in an effort to get <laughs> my dad and this other young man to stop wrestling, he took a broom and threw it at him, threw it at him like a javelin. Oh. And it went right into his eye socket. Oh. Wow. And uh, eventually had to be surgically removed. Um, they received an apology from Archbishop Rummel. <laughs> and uh, that was the extent of it. Jesus what? Christ. There was never any financial restitution of oh. any kind whatsoever. Well, the Catholic Church is broke. But, I mean, yeah, like, they don't I know, have the resources struggling. to pay yeah. all of the kids that Alms they have the poor. physically harmed. So, Jared, um, what are your thoughts on uh, Mary's potential uh, skills as a warm, loving, and empathetic caregiver later in her life. As someone who is not a professional in uh, anything regarding adult psychology, uh, I, I'd say probably probably never going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the intuitive <laughs> response. Yeah. yeah. I, I have a, a, again, just going back to like working with kids who have those uh difficulties it's hard to imagine that they're not repeating a lot of those patterns as adults right okay it's 
again, but I, I am not a professional in that regard, so I could not sit here and say for sure, but I'd imagine she probably was not a great mom. Okay. Um, why don't we move on to uh, to a different horrifying uh, story of youth? The story of Carol Edward Cole, better known as Eddie. Jared, uh, what were your initial impressions about uh, about Eddie? Man, okay, so Eddie, <laughs> look, <laughs> Jared, Eddie, he's straight getting straight up went he's to moving a guy. in his chair, guys. We, <laughs> yeah, we got we got motion. <laughs> we got motion on the Zoom. <laughs> Eddie straight up went up to a cop and was like, "I need help." Yep. And the guy was like, "Multiple yeah, you times." You should go do this. <laughs> And so he's like, maybe I will. And then he goes and gets himself committed <laughs> mm-hmm. and then does nothing with it. Yeah. He's like, yeah, he's right. I should be committed. But then he gets there and he's like, ah, I don't really yeah, need this. It seemed like, like he got cold feet. Yeah, it's um, it's it's hard to advocate heavily for um for the police after hearing this particular story. There's no. there's there's just so many places where uh, they just decided not to do anything. Um, yeah, I, I mean, you know, and to clarify for the audience, like Eddie got caught. <laughs> oh, but if it, if, it wa- <laughs> if it wasn't articulated clearly in the story, the police didn't catch him. They took him in for questioning. They detained him. They let him go. They re-detained him, but they never charged him. He confessed. They they didn't bring the hammer down and figure this all out. <sighs> he confessed. They were prepared to let him go again before he confessed. Lord knows how long this would have went on. Uh, I have so many feelings. It wasn't just one time. No, of course. No. Yeah. And Edward, didn't you say that there are a significant number of uh, things that you left out because we didn't have four hours for you to talk about all of the shit Eddie did before he got charged? I mean, most basically, we didn't have time to talk about all the murders. I mean, we, we referenced, <laughs> you know, maybe a half dozen killings in, in this specific timeline because these kind of, uh, I don't know, they were like mile markers in a sense. Like they, they, they kind of represented certain shifts in time and throughout his development and or devolvement. Um, but yeah, uh, 35 was his rough estimation, but he did say that he was so drunk most of the time, he probably killed more and just didn't remember. Well, speaking of candor, I mean. Yeah. It gives, <laughs> gives new meaning to body count. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, Interesting ja- cat. Ja- with Jared, what for you was the most disturbing uh, point in this long narrative of uh, fuckery? Oh, God. There were so many. Um, uh, probably the one where he just woke up and apparently like had a little snack out of a person and didn't remember it <laughs> that was special yeah. yeah that was that was wild he's like i don't remember doing this woke up and it was already like this yeah, but, uh, yeah. I, I guess it was me like yeah i mean i have under the influence of substances eaten things that i forgot that i ate um you know yeah, but like done cheetos things. yeah I, I was gonna say they're usually like gluten-free pretzels <laughs> it's, a, it's a freezer pizza that you find the box the next day it's it's yeah it's um that was a really involved thing for him to do while while blacked out or wherever he was 
Um, which part of Eddie's traumatic childhood do we think was the the most problematic? Uh, well, the one thing that both stories have in common. It was physical abuse and watching their mothers have sex. Yeah. That's- uh, and I'm not saying that's recurrent in every serial killer story, but no, like these, these two. two stories, it does kind of lend itself a little bit when we're saying like, well, what would have happened if Mary had never gotten caught? Like what would her life turned into mm-hmm. and it, it probably would have followed a very similar trajectory where the killings would just get more depraved more disturbed and and uh, until she just had a mental collapse of some sort yeah she didn't seem um even remotely interested in slowing down and she also seemed extremely enthusiastic about getting attention uh and validation for the thing that she had done right uh, hence some of her weird behavior um like writing hey we did it fuck off um, <laughs> with the nicknames Fanny and Faggot written underneath. It was so abrupt. Yeah, that like was a 10-year-old girl. A 10-year-old girl was essentially like, eat shit, copper. And you're like, oh yeah. my God. Which <laughs> Different circumstances. I yeah, would no, no. And so there's there's certain circumstances where I'm like, yeah, but actually hers. You're like, no, girl, you 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 misunderstood the assignment. Yeah. Um, Jared, uh, what what in his childhood jumped out at you as? Oh, this is really bad for this kid. Uh, I mean, honestly, I right along with what Edward said, the fact that he suffered so much physical abuse and then had to also uh, witness like uh, sexual acts that kids just don't really need to be witnessing. Yeah, especially when it's their mom. You know, if, if you if you happen upon two squirrels copulating in a yard, you know, it can be educational. If, if you are forced to watch a parent have a sexual link, it's a very, it's not so much a learning experience. I mean, it's learning, but the, the, you should unlearn that, what you're learning really fast. Mm-hmm. Real quick. Uh, yeah, real quick. Um, Jared, do you have anything written down about the Eddie case that you'd like to point out? or He needed better care, and it was a failure of the system just over and over and over and over and over and over. Sure. It was constant failure of the system in every way. What do you think the odds are that either one of you uh, received a toy from Toys R Us that was packaged by Eddie? <laughs> in the well, I was, I was quite impoverished growing <laughs> up. Unlikely. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I we did not get a lot of Toys R Us yeah. uh, in our lives. That was not really in our tax bracket, but we did get some. So I would say the pr- it's it's low, but it's not it's impossible. Low. Okay, gotcha. What about you? One percent, probably. I'm, I'm gonna, you know, you never know. You never know. Like whenever my birthday came around, I. I got a few bucks and I would, you know, go get a, a little $3 toy or something from Toys R Us. Mostly I just like to walk around and pretend like I was one of those kids who got one of those. Uh, oh, God, the Nickelodeon giveaways where you can yeah, just run up and down. Yeah, where you can run like, around yeah. with a shopping cart and just oh, empty fuck, as much yeah. shit into your basket just, as humanly yeah, possible. Yeah, just like 15 Sega Genesis. Uh, I was yeah, convinced yeah. that was going to be me one day. Uh, same. Turns out it wasn't. Also same. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, okay, you, um, you get to parent one of these should look we've had a uh, we've had a really <laughs> we've had a really interesting week where a lot of people are talking about how important it is to make sure kids get brought into the world and that we'll get them brought into the world and then we'll hook them up with an adoptive or a foster parent so since everybody's going to be doing their 
pro-life best. Uh, which one of these children are you, Edward, going to adopt? Um, are, are you working with Eddie or are you going to take Mary under your wing? Hooey. Um, I'm going to say Eddie. I think um, it, it took him, even though he committed murder sooner in his life, um, there seemed to be a number of occasions where this guy was like, I really need help. Mm-hmm. And so I think there might have been a willingness that Mary quite possibly never would have demonstrated. Um, but either way, I don't know. Maybe it's just the affinity of both being named Eddie. But uh, uh, you see yourself in, in young. In, I think I could have helped Carol. for sure. Okay. Uh, Jaron, how about you? Which uh, which uh, which Christian duty are you going to fulfill? Um uh, are we taking them before or after their murders? Because after. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> um, I'm gonna say Mary, just because there's more time to try and try and make that right. Eddie, Eddie kept going forever, man. Okay, but. okay, all right, that's fair. Also, you know, she was, you know, possibly easier to subdue at a certain age, just because of size. <laughs> I don't you know, know like but she sounds like she was like a little wolverine yeah I, she she sounds like a rabid meerkat and um also like someone who was smart enough to like start resorting to poison if you'd given her enough time so yeah, 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 yeah i was gonna there, say there would no longer be any sharp objects in my house but yes also a, a very very strict natural uh diet and uh you make all of your own food never accept a a edible gift from mary just right just don't do it nope. um so to close out, and without, you know, again, not wanting to derail this or, or drift too far into the political, but we are having a very big conversation nationally right now about, hey, um, certain rules being changed are probably going to lead to a significantly higher number of, of kids who are not wanted and perhaps n- not um, close to the resources that one needs to uh, develop healthfully. So, um, Jared, do you have any thoughts or advice for people listening about what they should know or do, um, or how they could better advocate? Uh, cause you know, everybody loves the idea of, I just want to see babies brought into the world. But, uh, I think that these stories do a really good job of illustrating if you bring babies in the world without supplying them, the resources that they need, perhaps your fantasy is not going to play out the way you you have it in your head. Uh, man, as far as thoughts or advice, I am probably the worst person to ask because I am like a straight white cis dude who has like, my life is on easy mode, basically. <laughs> you are um, also a parent and an educator and somebody who's had a lot of experience with poverty yourself. So you might have some insight. I would, I would literally say find organizations that are already out there doing the work mm-hmm. and find out what they need from them. So don't reinvent the wheel. Um, but if you want to help and have a strong urge to help and make things better, try and find the people who are already out there doing good work and contribute to them in any way you can. And how important in them finding organizations to work with is it for them to look for organizations that are trauma-informed and uh, consider our understanding of trauma and what they do? I mean, I'd say that's one of the most important things of any type of mutual aid or uh, social justice work we could do is it, it's super important to find those people who are trauma-informed and are trying to do things from a from a 
perspective of easing the suffering of uh, the world around him. Well said. Mr. Simon, um, especially as somebody who is uh, devoting a lot of his future to studying how to undo the knots that trauma uh, trauma tie in people, uh, what thoughts or feedback would you have uh, for people as we go into this strange new world? The system as we look at it now, some would say that it's overburdened. Mm-hmm. Some would say that there's already not enough resources for, for mental health, for foster care, for children that are thrust into the system and often fall through the cracks, etc. Given that this is the reality, at least for the foreseeable future, my hope is that our government will provide more, if they can, wherever it's going to come from, for mental health services and make it easier for families with resources to adopt versus the litany of restrictions that are often imposed before a family can take a child home because there are tens of thousands of them that are waiting to go someplace, you know. But uh, I hope our government responds at least in a way that actually supports mothers that are now being forced to bring children into the world, unwanted pregnancies into the world. And I do hope that the community, especially those that felt so passionately about this subject, rise to the occasion. Yeah, uh, my, my sort of feeling is uh, we are where we are. Um, it's not great and there's important work to be done. Um, but in the meantime, while that work is being done, uh, if you are somebody who is heartened by the rulings, uh, you need to get actively and personally involved in providing free child care. You need to get actively and personally involved in uh, in providing transportation for kids to school and parents uh, for extracurriculars. If you know a person who is struggling um, with their mental health and has a child, you need to step up, open your wallet and offer to pay for that person's therapy. Um, if uh, my sister goes to a church uh that made a statement on Sunday uh, saying, essentially, you know, we are a a church that is pro-love, um, which is making this a complicated issue for us. But what we want to say to our congregation is if you are one of the people celebrating what happened on Friday, you need to cancel your victory lap and take a walk of humility instead. And once you have finished your walk of humility, you need to immediately reach into your personal resources or your wallet and apply them to supporting all mothers and their children immediately. And I think that was a useful message, uh, especially in light of doing literally 12 hours of research that uh, made me so uncomfortable. I had to turn cartoons on at one in the morning because I was afraid that Mary, who was 11 in the 60s, was going to appear in my house and strangle me. That's how frightened I was alone in my house. So, Yeah. um, yeah. Yeah, hopefully the community effort will not end at the decision. So, Jared. Yes. As the singular judge, the first ever singular judge in the history of this show, who is our singular winner today? First of all, this is immense pressure. Uh, Don't worry. immense honor. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, We both get another chance next week, Jared. Yes, we (laughs) We won't take this personally. Yeah, it's going to be fine. No, 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 no. This is this is big for me. Forget you guys. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is a chance for me to really write out my ego here. Great, uh, great. <laughs> uh, honestly, both of them uh, just incredible stories. And I don't say incredible as in like, wow, that was great. But incredible <laughs> as in 
whoa, that happened. Yes. Um, I, looking at both of them, like Mary Bell is uh, very famous. Apparently, I learned earlier in the <laughs> week, uh, and I had I'd never heard of uh, poor Eddie. Uh, but oh my goodness, like I say, poor Eddie. Like he was, he was poor for a minute, and then uh, you know he he. Mm, no. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, as you. far as as far as the stories go, uh, while Mary's was wild, and it happened at a very early age, uh, I'm putting down uh, Edward's story as the winner this week, just oh, because wow. like Edward the sheer Simon. amount of this wow. that he got through the failures of the system the the so many times he could have been stopped or mm. quit or gotten help and quit uh and it just never happened for him and so like i, I think all of that kind of comes together for me on this one yeah. all right you know what i get it i get it i may have lost but you know detective you had a Dobson, damn good story i had a good story i did i did i again i had to watch cartoons to fall asleep after i wrote it so like <laughs> I, I get i know i know i'm good but yeah it had, had there been a it sounds like poor eddie didn't get a detective dobson to go oh fuck we have to put this girl in jail she's gonna do this again and so yeah yours yours does have a lingering effect so yeah. well i guess we don't get to release um the uh the parliament of toddlers with their weapons uh, upon jared this time um <laughs> but uh gary could you let him go keep keep can candy. i keep the paper mache girdle though yes what yeah no that's yours now that's <laughs> it's a gift we'll autograph that for you <laughs> Well, folks, that's it for season two, episode two. If you'd like to argue against today's winner being Edward, you can do so on our very fun Instagram at humanfuckerypodcast or over on Twitter at humanfuckerypod. Uh, we do not have a Facebook because our content kept getting banned due to being either uh, too obscene or too radical, which honestly is fine by us. Um, we also released a brand new secret story time on our Patreon, which is utterly fucking nuts and a really fun listen. Uh, it's a banter-free chronicling of one of the most notorious Christian cults in American history that almost nobody remembers because they existed before social media. You can find that at www.patreon.com back slash human fuckery. If you're not already a subscriber, please do join us. Uh, if we gain some more followers, we can afford to produce more episodes more than once a month. It's good for everybody. We will be back in July with a whole new episode, new stories, new judges, and tons of human fuckery. Until then, stay safe, keep it kind, and please stay weird. <laughs>